How's everybody doing? Good. Uh, y'all a little quiet this morning. Y'all good? Had a rough night last night? Everybody okay? Still no answers. Everybody okay? Good. Thank you. Thank you, Rico. I appreciate the enthusiasm. Uh, so real quick, just because y'all are a little sleepy, uh, before I pray, you know, this is going to be the third in a series we did about the, the image of God. And I need uh, two people to raise their hands and tell me something that's been helpful for them from the series so far, from the last two weeks. Yes. Yeah, good. Excellent. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Anybody else? One more person. One more brave soul. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't see. Yeah. Praise God. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for working with us this morning. Yeah. All right. Yeah. pray. Uh, and then uh, if I ask you about my sermon next week, I hope you have good things to say too. So listen close. All right, let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus name. Uh, God, because we need your help. Uh, God, your word is good. Father, we're, we're weak. Father, our attention spans are weak. Uh, Father, our hearts are, are hardened. And so, you know, if this is going to be fruitful, God, and have any kind of eternal impact, God, we really need your grace. So we pray that you give it to us now. And Father, we pray that you help us to see clearly, a little bit more clearly who you are, God, and how we should respond to you. God, and we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, well, I've been, I've been married for seven years. My wife is, is right here. And one thing, oh yeah, there we go. Yeah. Y'all woke up. I appreciate that. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed about marriage that I realized right away but becomes more and more clear with each day is that marriage changes you. In good ways and unexpected ways, marriage changes you. Anybody who's married can tell you that. And I'll tell you one of the ways marriage changed me. When I was single and I lived in a house in uh, northeast Philly with a roommate named Thomas, we didn't have a lot of furniture, but we had a TV. And uh, when a lot of meals cooked in that house. Uh, but me and Thomas, when, when I was it and I was single, and then even when he moved out, my TV would always be just kind of on ESPN all the time. So if the TV's on, it's usually going to be ESPN. <laughs> and the Sports Center, you know, they keep playing the same one, but you might watch it twice just because, uh, just because you want to see the highlights again. And I, and I felt good about that. You know, I would watch TV. And anytime if I was watching a movie or something or a TV show, or some real gangster, explosions and guns going off, okay? And then I got married. And I started listening to John Mayer and watching HGTV. <laughs> because I met my wife and marriage changes you. And on HGTV, which I actually still like and am unashamed to admit, uh, they have different kinds of shows. So they have one kind of show that's like, house hunters where people look for a house to buy, a brand new house, 
and they look at a couple options, and then they choose the one they like the best. And I'm doing air quotes because I figured out it was fake, and I hate the show now because it ruined it for me. They, they're acting. Okay. But, so but they'll go into these other houses, and they'll just pick them apart. You know, they'll be like, oh, this house is beautiful, perfectly made, but I don't like that blue paint right there. So I could never do this house. And they pick these houses apart until they finally find the perfect house, usually the third one that they see. And when they go in this house, it's like it's everything that they ever dreamed of. It's perfect. It's everything that they needed. And that's one kind of old beat up houses that are in awful shape that nobody wants anymore. They look terrible, right? But they find something in them that they like. So if you ever watch Fixer Up or they'll they have like these little catchy names for them and there'll be some, they call it character. Usually that means old, real old, there's character. And they'll just find something in it that they really, really like. And because they see something in it, they decide, you know what, instead of buying a new house, I would rather buy this house where I can really, you know, bring out its potential. And so they'll renovate it. And not only do they fix the stuff that just doesn't look good, but they want to make sure it's structurally sound and Electrical is good, and everything is good because they want to make this house excellent. At the end of the show, the house looks brand new. People shed tears as they walk through their home, and um, I wonder if that's fake too. But as we think about this and these two different kinds of of shows we see where they'll pick a brand new house that seems exactly perfect, or this house is really beat up, and they'll just kind of try to bring it to its full potential. Often when we think about how God chooses people who he'll save, we think that God is that first kind of show. Like God is going around looking for people, picking them apart, seeing their issues, and deciding that he really wants to just find that perfect person that's moving ready. Like I can enter their hearts right now. They're they're moving ready. They don't have any issues. They're broken. When actually what we see in Scripture is what God does is that while we see other people sometimes, and all of us are broken, and sometimes we decide it's okay to just discard people like they don't matter anymore, that's just not how God works. God sees us in our brokenness. And what God does is, is he doesn't just demolish, is he gives us an offer, right, that he could make us brand new, right, from the inside out. That's what God does. That's, that's how the Lord works, because he sees something in us despite our brokenness that makes him think he wants to commit himself to us. And that thing that God sees in us is his own image. Right. As we've been talking about, God created us in his image, which gives all of us, no matter what our different kinds of brokenness are, this kind of inherent value and worth. And God, who created us in his image to reflect what he's like in all of the universe, is so committed to that image being displayed that even though we're broken and even though we display that image in a distorted way, God is so committed to us that instead of just forgetting us, God wants to work with us. Right. And to renew that image in us. When we think about being made in the image of God, it's almost like we're a mirror, right? It's all of us are mirrors. And God should be able to look at us and see a reflection of what he's like. I should be able to look at people and see a reflection of what God is like. But with sin, because we're broken, it's like those mirrors have been shattered. So that if God were to look into it, he still sees himself, but it's a distorted picture, right? That lines through it, it's... Things are kind of messed up. Different parts look bigger. And that's what happens when you have sinners like us in a fallen world. And that there's still incredible value in the worth in the fact that we reflect the image of God. We show people what God is like, but we're broken. And here's the thing. God is committed 
through his image being reflected correctly. So when God sees us in our broken state, he, he calls us to himself and he renews that image in us. So I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 3. I'll give you background on Colossians really quickly, which is the background of a lot of Paul's letters. He spends the first few chapters talking big concepts, you know, why God created the world, how you can be reunited with God, what sin is, what Jesus did. And then he'll, he'll usually have a pivot in the book where then he says, okay, and here's how you need to respond. Like, here's how you need to live your life. If you believe in his Jesus, right, if you believe all that stuff I said about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, then here's how you should live your life. Colossians chapter 3, Paul then begins to, to apply all the stuff that he said. This is God's word. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. I'll read through verse 4 right now. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We'll go all the way through to verse 11 throughout this sermon, but I'll tell you what I think the main idea is right now. When God finds us in our brokenness, God won't just throw us out or patch us up. He'll make us new. What God is committed to do, what he offers to do is not just to throw us out or patch us up. He's committed to make us new. And so we'll start looking at those verses 1 to 4, and what we're going to see right there is new life. Verses 1 to 4, we'll see this new life um, because God is, you know, he's committed to make us new. Growing up, I went to, uh, my family went to this um, big, kind of contemporary, kind of traditional black Baptist megachurch. And in Dallas, like Atlanta, there are a trillion megachurches, right? And so we were at one, and then we could like, high-five somebody who attended the other one while we were still in the building. There are a lot of them just in the same same area. And when I was a little kid and I would sit in these sermons and the, and the pastor would preach, I was so confused because it seemed like they ended the same way every week. And I may have said this before, but it seemed like, which would be ironic, they ended the same way every week. And that, you know, whatever the sermon was about, at the end it would get to this. You know, when Jesus died on Friday, and Friday night he was in the grave. And then Saturday morning, he was still in the grave. Oregon comes in a little bit at the right moments. And the pastor at that time, E.K. Bailey, like he could sing a little bit too. So it, it went into his whole thing. But then it would be like, and Saturday night, he was still in the grave. And then at the crescendo, then early on Sunday morning, right, Jesus got up from the grave. And so I'll be like, man, that was really powerful the first time I heard it. Why every week? I was like, are y'all running out of material? Why, why every week do we end the exact same way? And what I didn't understand as a little kid who didn't understand what the good news of Jesus was about is that they were a lot wiser than me. Because when you look in the Bible, Paul talks about the resurrection a lot too. Because there's no way for us to understand how to actually obey Jesus, how to actually live in light of what Christ did, if we don't understand the fact that Jesus got up from the grave. 
And so when Paul begins to tell us how we should live and light all that stuff he was talking about, Paul doesn't just say, you know, he just wants us to be better people. He is going to call us to repent of our anger, to repent of our lives. But before he gets to that, he's going to talk about, before he talks about the new way we, uh, we should walk, he's going to talk about our new life. And he's going to root that in the new life of Jesus, the fact that Jesus got up from the grave. So I'm, I'm going to read that first verse again. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above, right? So he talks about being raised with Christ. Like we talked about, we're broken in our sin. And the Bible says that we are so broken, our hearts have been so corrupted by sin, that if we were going to be able to please God and be reunited to God, right, and obey him from a pure heart, our hearts were so corrupt, we were born so corrupt the first time that we had to get a do-over. Like we had to start over. We had to be born again, born over again, to have new spiritual life. It says we were dead in our sins. We had to be recreated. And Paul already talked about this in chapter 2. He said, you know, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And what you see Paul do all the time is he'll connect our spiritual state to the spiritual state of Jesus over and over and over again. He's not going to be like Jesus resurrected, and then at some other point you might resurrect. He connects them. He says we are raised with Christ, right? So being raised with Christ means we were spiritually lifeless, dead in our sin, unable to connect with God, unable to, uh, blinded to his goodness. But now we have spiritual life. We can connect with God. We have eyes to see how good he is. The only reason when a passage is read or a song is sung, and you hear that and you think, man, that God really is good, is because your eyes are open and you're spiritually alive, right? You cannot sincerely, from a sincere heart, actually see God and see him as good and, and feel drawn to him, minus your eyes being open and, and being given spiritual life. So Paul is going to say, look, you were raised with Christ. You can't resurrect by yourself, and that's spiritually or physically, right? If you don't want your life to end after physical death, your only chance to be raised to eternal life is the Lord Jesus, the only one who got up from the grave, who's also saying, hey, I can take you with me, right? So this spiritual or physical resurrection has to be through Jesus because we don't have that power, and we didn't earn the right to be raised. But Jesus, he earned that resurrection, and he has that power to do it. It's been empowered by him. Raised to new life. Some may say, okay, well, I'm raised to new life. I'm a new man. That means I probably shouldn't have any of that old stuff in my life anymore. I'm, I'm a new man, so that means I'm, I'm perfect now, no more sins. And if anybody thought that when they became a Christian, it took about five minutes before they were like, mm, I don't think that's how this goes. Right? So Paul isn't trying to say that, hey, if you just believe in Jesus, you'll be raised and you'll never sin again. Like, Paul wouldn't be shocked if he were here like, y'all are still sinning, right? This wasn't a surprise to him, right? Paul understood that us dying to sin didn't mean we would never sin again. What that meant is uh, sin no longer had any power over us, right? We're no longer enslaved to sin, that Jesus had killed sin. So then when we submit to sin, it's not because we have to, because we're enslaved, it's because we choose to, because we've deceived ourselves. That's what it means that we're dead to sin, right? That we've died and we've raised and, and sin no longer has that power over it. So Paul is saying, look, if you're spiritually resurrected, then there's some serious implications, right? If you're really reborn, that, then something should be happening in your life. And I, I do this kind of if-then thing to my wife sometimes where 
Um, and she calls it manipulative. I don't think it is. But if I need something and I need it badly, I'll just, before I ask for it, I'll just say, hey, do you love me? And of course, she has to say yes. I'm like, oh, okay, well, can you um, go grab me some socks real quick? I'm just tired. But only if you love me, though. If you don't love me, don't worry about it. And so I think that's perfectly logical. I mean, I'm just asking a question before I ask her to do something. And she says it's manipulative. And so it's to the point now, if I ask if she loves me, she just ignores me, which makes people think we have marriage issues in public. Different thing. That's similar to what Paul is doing. Now, Paul isn't guilting us. He isn't manipulating us. But the point is similar. He's saying, look, if this is true, if you were really raised by Jesus, then it should show up in your actions. Right? If you were really given new life, if you died and were re- reborn, it should show up in your actions. So he says, if you were raised, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And that sounds weird to us, right? You know, seek the things that are above. I mean, you get this image of somebody like wandering around, just looking up in the air. Or it's like a call to levitate. Staring into the clouds, and, and it sounds strange to seek things that are above. It sounds a little bit like a, a caricature people have of any religious people, right? Your head is in the clouds, right? You're thinking so much about this afterlife that you're not really worried about this life that much, right? You know, we're going to heaven, so who cares about all the stuff going on? Who cares about the environment? Who I'll eat burgers for three meals a day. I'm going to get a new body anyway, right? This is what people think, though, when they hear someone say they would seek the things above, not the things on earth. And there were actually people around during Paul's time who did think that way, who thought anything physical, like the physical body, that's, that's wrong. That's evil. Not only these spiritual things are good. So this is why you see Paul, like, defend the bodily resurrection. Like, no, Jesus got up with his actual body, right? And, and, and God is going to raise us with our actual bodies. Paul is not saying you know, everything that's physical in this earth is bad. You know, just just think about uh, spiritual things. I mean, you think about people saying, don't be so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good. Right? This, this is how people think. But I think the way Paul is going to talk about it here, seeking the things that are above, I don't think we can be of much earthly good if we're not heavenly-minded because we won't really even understand what earthly good is. I mean, how are we defining good if we're not going to the source of our good to do it? So Paul says, seek the things that are above. So let's talk about that phrase, things that are above. He, he's really just talking about heavenly things, the, the things of heaven. And just in case you don't believe me, he says right there after that, where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. And where is God? Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. He's talking about heavenly things. Now, real quick, when you think heaven, I don't want you to think or things above, things below. Don't think like geographical locations, okay? It's, it's more of a description of two kinds of systems, like the way of heaven or the way of earth, right? So that the way of heaven would be God's will, God's design, right? Perfection and love and goodness and grace. And, and the way of the world would be the way that we tend to do things on earth. Right in our brokenness and our lack of love and our lack of grace. So when he's contrasting things above and things on earth, that's what he means. And talks about Christ being seated at the right hand of God, which is like, you know, you heard people say like their right hand man. I mean, this this is a way to talk about the status of Jesus. 
right, in the heavens, preeminent above everybody else. And so when we think heaven, though, that doesn't mean anything for a lot of us because when we think heaven, we think floating around in the clouds somewhere. We think maybe we'll grow wings in a halo. In case you're worried about that, that's not in the Bible. Surprise, right? That's not in there. We don't turn into to angels. We don't float around in clouds. None of that is in the Bible. The way that we should think of heaven is we should think of heaven as the place or the realm where God is, right? It's God's place. And in God's place, everything is according to God's will. Everything goes God's way. There is no sin. There is no death because this is God's place, right? So that when we long, for, if you long for heaven, but you don't long to be with God, you don't understand what heaven is. That's the big deal about heaven. God is there. God's presence forever, right? That, that's what heaven is about. So then when we talk about our minds being on the things that are above, right, we're talking about the things of God, the things that are heavenly or godly or in accordance with God's will, the thing God cares about. That's what we should be seeking. He says, seek the things that are above. I wonder if you realize that we're always seeking something. You realize that at any moment of any day, at any season in our life, we are always seeking something. We're always in search of something, pursuing something, investigating something, aiming at something. Every one of us in this room is in pursuit of something. And we may not be able to think of it off the top of our head because sometimes it's not intentional. But even when we're not intentionally seeking something, we are seeking something, right? So some of us maybe are not thinking that much about what we're seeking right now. But we know that we really want to do good in school because we want our parents to, to be cool with us. Or we really want to do well in our job because we want our family. And what we don't realize is if we're not careful, we can begin to orient our whole life seeking the approval of other people above God. Right? Even when you're not thinking you're seeking something, you can be seeking something. Or somebody may say, well, I'm so busy, I don't have time to think about what I'm seeking. But again... Some of us have filled our lives so much to the brim because what we're seeking is some status of some important, busy person, right? Whether or not we're thinking about it intentionally, we are always seeking something. And we have this strange idea that we can just kind of put it in neutral and not go in any direction. Well, life is not like this perfectly flat road that you go down. You can put it in neutral and stay in place. It's really like an uphill drive, Right? And so when you're in drive and you're on the gas and you're seeking to go ahead, seeking the things that are above, the things of God, these heavenly things, it's all good. But when you decide you want to just kind of put it in neutral and chill for a little bit, just understand, if we're not seeking the things above, we absolutely will be seeking the things below. It'll be this backward slide, right? We will drift, right, if we're not intentionally trying to go in a particular direction. And Paul says we need to be seeking the things that are above. And he tells us to set our minds on the things above too, to set our minds on them. Right? It means to think about it, to consider it, right? to, to aim for it. And one of the ways I've thought about it, setting my mind on things above, it, it's kind of like giving my mind the track to run on, right? The, the guiding it in the right direction, guiding my thoughts. Uh, my son has a little um, Thomas train and you can press it and it goes by itself until the batteries die and I pretend like we don't have any more. 
And when it's not on a track, it just goes in aimless directions, falls off on the couch, hits a train. I mean, hits the trash can. And, I mean, it goes in all places under couches. But when we have this track that somebody gave us and we put it on it, well, it starts to do amazing things. It goes up and down. It goes in all of these circles. It starts to do something because it's being guided. And this is the same thing with our thoughts. I hope we understand that our thoughts, unguided, will run off the cliff often. Right. We cannot just trust our hearts and our thoughts to just drift into the right place. It takes this intentional setting our minds on the things above. I wonder if you ever think about cultivating your thoughts in that way. Being careful what you think about, what you're aiming for, what's in your heart and your mind. Paul is saying, look, if you've been raised with Christ, then you need to do this. Right. This is part of what follows that. Where does your mind go when you daydream? This is a good way to know what we've been setting our minds on. When you're not into, when you just daydream and you catch yourself, what are you dreaming about? Often we'll find ourselves dreaming about, you know, something we'll accomplish that people will think we're amazing. Or just some singular relationship that we want to have. And those things could be fine. But if we're not careful, Right, we'll begin to build our lives around the wrong things. And you know, the, the kind of the first battlefield for us is the mind. Setting our minds on the things above. How do we do that? If only God had spoken to us about the right way to think about a lot of stuff in a book that you could have at home at all times. Now this this is God's word where God has spoken to us in very relatable and clear ways and he gives us the chance to do that. Just a side note, I want you to know when God gives us commands in his word, it's not like a gotcha, right? He's not like secretly hoping we won't obey them. He he gives us those commands because he loves us and it's what's best for us and he even gives us his spirit to dwell inside of us to help us and he's given us his word. So when he says set your mind on the things above, He's given us what we need to be able to do that. Not only that, but prayer, right? And sometimes prayer is a muscle we got to build up too because we'll be praying and then we'll realize we're daydreaming about Michael Phelps and you got to start again, right? But this is muscles we got to build up, right? Times like this, this is a good time to set our mind on the things above. Sometimes when you're too tired, you haven't opened the Bible all week, you're struggling, it's good to just gather with God's people and sit under the Word. Right? It's, it's good for us. It, there are good things God has given us to be able to do that. And again, he, he gives us the reason. Right? He says we've died and we have new life in Jesus. That's why we should do that. Right? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. He's saying it's, it's crazy to live like a regular old you because that old life doesn't exist anymore. You've died. Do you, have you thought about your spiritual life like that? Like the old you has died? Like, that's a past life of yours? You've been buried and you've been raised as a new person? So to live like we're still that old person is very strange. Because now that our lives are hidden in Christ, we have all kinds of new goals and ambitions and sights and things we're setting our minds on. This would be like if Kevin Durant, who just left the the thunder uh, for the Warriors, sorry, Rich, um, left the thunder for the Warriors, who will be dominant for years to come, uh, this would be like if he, once he gets to the Warriors, starts running Oklahoma City Thunder plays, right, and has their playbook in mind and has their game plan in mind. It's like that. that's a nice thing to do if you were the person you used to be. 
But you're in a new place. You're on a new squad. You have new goals. You have new ambitions. You have new personnel. You're in a new situation. And Paul is saying, look, it is foolish to keep living like we, like we're our old selves. Look, if you've been raised with Christ, this is what we've been called to. And, of course, our relationship with Jesus is a much bigger shift than switching NBA teams. We're talking about spiritual death to spiritual life. Now, I hope that doesn't sound too uh, depressing to you, like, man, my life is hidden in Christ. I can't even have none of my own thoughts anymore. Is it a, what chapter tells me what CDs to listen to? You know, I don't want you to feel like that. It's not like your individuality has been erased, like you can't be you or you don't have a personality. It's just when our lives are hidden in Christ, when, uh, when Christ, who Jesus is, engulfs all that we are and it... Uh, and it sets the, and it shapes our goals and our ambitions and our thoughts and our emotions and the decisions that we make. It's not that our personality gets erased. It's that now we understand how to live as who we are right in the right way. Right? There are gifts that you have and quirks about your personality and ways that you connect with people that we were wasting before we knew Jesus thrown away because we didn't know how to live. And now our life is hidden in Christ and how gracious of God, right, not to, to throw us out or even just to patch us up, but to make us new. That's, that's, that's good news that God has done that for us. And it's, it should feel liberating, not, not depressing. And he closes this little part by saying, when Christ, who is your life, I mean, that, the way he's talking about how close we are to Jesus is not like who is your friend or who is your brother or who is your father, who is your life. And your life is, is hidden in him. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Right? So it's, it's interesting that as he's trying to help us think about what to do now, he's talked about what's happened in the past, right? Jesus raised from the grave and you've been raised. That's past tense, you know. So you should set, seek the things that are above, set your mind on things that are above. And now he's going to the future it, on the other side of it is a way to convince us, right? And there's so many times when the present feels disorienting and unsure and you don't know what God is doing and you don't know what to do because you don't know what he's doing. The amazing thing is if we know Jesus, we may not always know what God is doing, but we know for sure what he's done and we know for sure what he's going to do. And faith in what Christ has done and what he's going to do, that's the fuel that we need in the unsure present tense. Right? So he's saying when Jesus shows back up and appears, right, you're so tight with Jesus that you're going to appear in glory with him. He's saying, look, you don't know what's going on right now, but I'll tell you what's going to happen. Eternal glory with your Lord Jesus. That's, that's really good. So that's, that's, our, that's our new life. That's our new life. And if anyone, you know, wants to say, you know, I got a relationship with Jesus, not a religion, no rules. Well, I just want you to know that's not really how the Bible talks about that. Right? That those are not things that are against one another. So we'll talk about that in this next part, new life. It's the longest point. Second one, new walk. A new walk. And the way Paul uses this word walk, he's not talking about a strut. We're not talking about George Jefferson. He means your behavior, the way that you live from day to day. Stop laughing like that, Caress. The way that you live from day to day. That's what he means when he says walk, right? So it goes like this. You were dead. You've been raised. And he's like, okay, so since you're alive in Christ, be that person. He's saying be who you are. 
Don't live in light of a lie. Live in light of the truth. You're a different person. It should change how you walk. And uh, if you, who you are changes, that should change what you do too, right? Now, there's a really clear example of this that I tried to avoid, but it's just too perfect, of someone who seems to not understand what's changed about them. So there's this guy uh, running for president. I don't know if you've heard of him. His name is Donald Trump. Wow, groans. I've never got that response automatically to a person. And all his life, Donald Trump has been this rich guy, right? And he's, you know, been successful. He's had everything that everybody else wants. He's had a lot of money. He's dated models, you know, successful businesses, TV shows, all of this. And so he began to just kind of build a brand on that. I'm rich and I have everything you want, right? And so he was able to be kind of crass and, and rude and arrogant. You know, it was part of his brand, like being a jerk to people on TV was part of his brand. And, and the Trump name began to be associated with just, I'm richer than you and I have the stuff that you want. And every now and then he would say stuff about politics and it didn't matter if he knew what he was saying because it was like, it's Donald Trump. I mean, it doesn't matter, right? Like we, we don't know, like it's not that serious. Like maybe he's wrong, you disagree, that's fine. But it's not, doesn't have huge implications and it worked for his brand. But then he began to run for president. So now that he's running for president, you know, people are like, oh, he's going to have to switch it up. But he didn't. He just kept saying stuff that was offensive to people. And he, you know, he announced his candidacy and called a whole people group criminals, to put it nicely. And he just kept doing all of this stuff, called Ted Cruz's wife ugly. I mean, just craziness. And then people are like, oh, but now he got the nomination. He's going to pivot, and he's going to get it together now. You know, he... Last week, he joked about assassinating Hillary Clinton and, you know, said the president founded ISIS. You know, he's just saying stuff. And so people keep trying to convince him, hey, you're not who you were a year ago, right? You're not just a business guy. You're now the nominee of a major U.S. political party. And so you have to change the way that you speak. But he's not doing it. This seems to me to be just a clear example However you feel about him, a clear example of your identity changed, but the stuff you did didn't change along with it. And the stuff you were doing maybe fit that old identity, but it doesn't really fit this one. And so this is what Paul is saying about the way that we should live, right? Who we are is different, and who you are has an impact on what you do. This is why sometimes if someone gets out of line, you say, who do you think you are, right? Right? It's like, yeah, if you're this person, you could say that, but not you. Who do you think you are, right? Who we are has something to do with whether or not it's appropriate what we do. And the change, obviously, that happened in us is much deeper than, you know, switching jobs or beginning to run for president. This is what Paul says, verse 5, what we should do. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Right, if we've really died and been reborn, he says, okay, well, put to death, therefore, was earth in you. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Paul goes through this list of things. It's not okay. Verse 5. I'm sorry, I skipped over the first list Paul does in verse 5. He says, put to death therefore what's earth in you, sexual immorality, 
impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Paul is telling us to put to death what's earthliness, which someone may say that's weird if Jesus supposedly defeated Satan and death and sin. How is it that I'm over here trying to put sin to death then? Well, again, what, what Scripture means when it says Jesus you know, defeated sin for us, so we're not under sin anymore, right? God has left us imperfect, but, you know, we're freed from it. We're not enslaved to us, but that doesn't mean that we don't have issues. So, you know, sometimes we should think of, instead of thinking of it like uh, like regeneration, like you die and you come back as a new person, maybe it's more helpful just to think of it as like you died and still you, you're just born over again, right? And so you're a baby again. So if someone's confused, if I'm a brand new person, how come I still have some of the same struggles as I did before? It's because we're we're babies, right? So we shouldn't always jump to, well, maybe I just haven't been raised to life. If I still have sin, well, the truth is spiritual immaturity can often look a little bit like spiritual death, right? There's some things that we're still working through, sins that we're still wrestling with, right? Because we have to mature, And this is part of why God has given us a a whole body of people and to walk through this stuff together with so that we can grow. You know, we're trying to put on a brand new mindset. We made decisions through one grid our whole life. We got to come up with a new one. And we had habits, so we got to switch, right? But Paul is not calling us to just accept the stuff that we have. He's calling us to put it to death. And he's called us to join God in his work of renewing that image in us. Right, So if you're thinking God is going to make me look like him and I'm just going to sit around and watch it happen, I just want you to know while God could have done it like that, that's not how he does it. God has called you to join him in the work, not because he needs you, but because he's given you the privilege of joining him in it. God is still sovereign over it. Right? If this is the renovation, he's still the contractor. He's still the one who he feels like it's his responsibility to make sure the job actually gets done. Right. But God has allowed us to join him in it. And so we got to fight. That's a command put to death. It's not a suggestion. Or we got to put it to death. So we should help each other fight these sins because that's that's violent language put to death. Putting something or someone to death isn't a, a good thing to think about unless your very life is in danger. Unless it's a war situation. Right. And this is war, right? Sin wants to take your life. It wants you dead in your sins, right? It's coming for you. And we've been called to put it to death. That's violent. Sin is very much alive and fighting us. We've been called to put it to death. So we should not treat our sins like toys or nuisances or our eclectic friends. Sin is much more dangerous than that. I don't know what sin that you this week, maybe, knew you were sinning. And I've been continuing in it for a while, and you feel like, ah, it just is what it is. It's this one area. And I want you to know the way Scripture talks about sin is not like it should be coddled, right, or, or bared with. It says we should put it to death. And here's the thing. There's some things that we, we've struggled with for a long time that feel impossible, right? I, I can think of sins in my life like, man, I've been struggling with this. It's like I say, how, how am I ever going to grow in this area? And the thing that gives me hope is not my own power, but again, knowing Jesus has already defeated that sin, 
It actually does have no power over me. And what I'm striving to do is to undo the deceit in my own mind that makes me think this is good for me or that I have to do that. Right? That's part of the putting that sin to death is changing the way that you think of it. So I want you to this week think about whether or not there's a sin in your life that you've been coddling, treating like a friend instead of an enemy that wants to kill you. And think about what it would mean for you to try to put that sin to death. And I want to encourage you, don't try to put your sin to death just on your own in isolation. God gave us a whole family called the church so that we can fight that together. Right? Who of you helped fight sin this week? Right? If this is one of the hardest things we'll battle, right, and something that's true for all of us. So just in case you've been trying to trick people and you're perfect and you don't have any sins, I'm going to just mess it up for you. They do, right? They have sins. We all have sins. And this is one of the hardest things we're going to have to fight because God cares about it. Shouldn't we help each other with it? Right? Can you think of times in your life when you were being stupid and somebody was like, hey, you're being stupid, and it helped you? Or somebody was like, hey, I see you wrestling with this. Here's what helped me. I cannot count the number of times God has helped me to grow and to put sin to death because somebody else helped me, confronted me, or gave me advice, or just prayed for me, walked along with me. Right? That, that, that's good for us. That's good for our souls. So Paul's going to go into this list, right, in case we're wondering what kind of earthly things these are. And he says, he mentions sexual immorality, impurity passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And most of these are self-explanatory. You know, sexual immorality is any kind of, you know, sex we pursue outside of marriage. And that includes adultery and lust and pornography. And he mentions impurity, means uncleanness, often meant sexual uncleanness in his culture. He talks about passion or strong desire, lustful desire. He says the evil desires, just what it sounds like, lust and covetousness, which is greediness, this never-ending desire for more. So there's a theme in this one. It seems like he's specifically pointing to sexual sin, which may or may not have been something very specific for the Colossians, but was just something that he knows people are going to wrestle with, especially coming from these Gentile backgrounds. And so he's going to point these out saying, these are some sins that you need to put to death. And he's saying the same thing to us, that we have to put to death that monster in our souls that doesn't trust God's plan for sex. Right, that doesn't trust enough to wait, that doesn't trust enough right, to be faithful, that doesn't trust enough to click things off of those screens. God is saying we got to put that to death. Here's what he does not say that so often uh, gets inadvertently communicated. Right? Sexual sin is not this unforgivable sin that like scars you forever and you'll never be pleasing to God again. That's just not in the Bible. Right? That's not in there. So if there's somewhere today who's just wrestling under guilt of sexual sin, feeling like God can never forgive you or you're somehow scarred forever, get that out of your mind. It's not in the Bible anywhere. However, God does say put it to death. Right? And it's not like it's too late. God is right here right now speaking to you and giving you the opportunity to turn from him. Right? That they will be pleasing to him. Because when God saved you, he knew you were broken, right? And he's been patiently and lovingly walking alongside you. And even now, he's priding you through his word, saying, turn away. I have something better for you. Let go of that. I have something better for you, right? Put that to death. I have something much better for you, and that doesn't have power over you anymore. 
That's what God is saying to you in his word. And so that we understand the, the seriousness of it. Paul says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And so as Christians, we, we think, okay, well, I'm, I'm in Christ, so you know, I've been saved from the wrath of God. And, you know, Scripture doesn't want you to think like that, right? Scripture wants us to, you know, the wrath of God to make us want to obey God. But also, you know, even if we're shielded from the wrath of God, which Scripture says we will be if we're in Christ, the fact that it causes God righteous indignation and, and fury and anger, the fact that that kind of sin makes your God angry, if you love God, should mean something to you. Right? That should mean something to us. When I think about, you know, sin in my life that I've looked up and thought, man, I've just been letting this hang out here like it doesn't matter. I forget that God really hates sin. And it was such a problem that Christ had to die for it. Like his son, he gave his only son to take care of this. This is not a, a little thing to God. And Paul says that so that we would remember the seriousness of sin on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. When we think about our relationship with God, we don't want to provoke him to anger. We want to bring him pleasure. We don't want to make him angry. We want to make him happy. Right? We want him to delight in us. He delights in us in Christ. But just like my son can in any moment do something that grieves me or makes me happy, God in the same way as our loving father is pleased. When we trust him. And he's not just pleased because we obeyed him, but because it's better for us. I mean, this is the hardest fight with putting any sin to death. It's trusting God. Like, God, I, this seems appealing, and you said it's not, and it's bad for me. And I believe you. I don't believe you, but I believe you. It doesn't feel that way, but I believe you. Especially these things he's talking about. I mean, he talks about, like, burning desire in about five or six ways. Right? That, you know, especially lust is intoxicating, right? It, it, it's, it's hard to think soberly, you know? So the hardest fight in putting sin to death is like, I believe you, God. Right? I, you love me. You've been trustworthy. You've never lied to me. And you're saying it's better for me to, to trust you. And we got to trust him. And I spent too much time there. Verses 7 and 8. He basically says very similar things. He says, in these, you two once walked, those kinds of sins that make God angry. He said, when you were living in them, right? So it's not just you sinned every now and then you were living in them. He's talking past tense. He says, but now, right, now that you've been raised, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices. And to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This second list he goes through, right, this all has to do with, you know, the way we interact with people. Anger, right, we know what that is. Wrath, it's just intense anger, indignation, malice, wanting evil for somebody, slander, speaking evil of somebody, and obscene talk, right, saying impure, obscene things about other people. And Paul is saying, hey, Colossians, if you really know Jesus, this shouldn't characterize your interaction with each other. When people come among God's people, they shouldn't hear a bunch of slander and gossip and, and malice. They should instead see love and building one another up and believing the best about one another. 
right? If we think that when Paul says, have your mind on things above, he means don't worry about people or anything going on here. That's just not what we see in the text, right? He's saying, look, if you setting your mind on things that are above means don't be a jerk to people, right? Because you've been made new. And you notice this list here, like some of them are actions, like slander, I've seen talk. Some of them are attitudes, malice, anger, wrath. Some of us, when we begin to think about how we can honor God and we examine our lives, we think about actions that are sinful. We never think about our attitudes. You can sin against God and against somebody without moving a muscle. Anger, wrath, malice, you know, these are ways that we sin against somebody. And sometimes it comes from bitterness, so we feel like the victim when we're angry and we want bad for somebody, but we really turn them into the victim, attacking them in our hearts, right? With this hatred instead of love for neighbor. Paul is saying, look, you got to put these things off. And he says, because, again, of what's already happened, right? You put off the old self with this practice you put on the new self. The, the, uh, The word there is like clothing. Right, so it's like if I took off this jacket and I put on Richard's fly vest, right? It's taking one thing off and putting something else on. He's saying the old self, this has already happened when you trusted Jesus. You took that off. This is what it means to be like, God, I want to let go of my sin and trust in Jesus. That's putting off that old self to put on that new self, to trust Jesus and, and run hard after him. He's saying you already did that. And he says don't lie to each other. Gospel, good news, people. You're supposed to be about the truth, not lies. Don't lie to one another about one another. It would be good for us to just think for a moment. You know, sometimes we like to talk to people about other people, and we act like we're venting for our own good. I just got to get this off my chest. Can you believe blah, blah, blah? You know what I'm saying? We're really gossiping and slandering other people. This is something that we don't often think about because it's not like a big list sin like sexual immorality or drunkenness or something, like all the bad ones. As of these things don't matter to God, and they do. I mean, it would be good for us to examine our hearts. Again, in this past week, has there been anybody that we've slandered? Anybody that we're holding ill will against in our heart? Paul's saying those aren't pet sins. And those may seem like respectable sins, but those need to be put to death just like the others. Because you've already put off your old self and put on the new. And he says, look, which this new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. There's that image language, right? That image was broken, that broken mirror, and it's being renewed in knowledge. And when he says in knowledge, that that word for knowledge doesn't just mean like book knowledge, like you learned a bunch of stuff. Like, I don't know where Philippi is on the map. That's not what he means by knowledge, being renewed in knowledge. It means knowledge of God, knowing God, a relationship with God. Isn't it amazing that the renewal of God's image doesn't just mean we get to reflect him, but it means we get to know him and that this is what God has been committed to and he's pursued and he sent his son for? I'm going to say this, if you're here and you don't know Jesus or you're just not sure if you know Jesus, you don't know what it means to, to follow Christ, This is all of our kind of issue here is that, you know, we're broken and and we do things that God hates. And it's true of all of us. Uh, But God loves us so much that he gave Jesus for us. Now, God, you know, the stuff you're wrestling with, God knows about all of that, everything in your heart, all your insecurities, and he cares. And he's calling you to himself to cast your burdens on him. And the way that happens is, what he's saying here is 
trusting in Jesus, right? believing that Jesus paid for our sins on the cross and rose from the grave, that he did defeat sin and death, and it's letting go of that old self and grabbing a hold of the new, right? And when you see that old self in there fighting against it, trying to put it to death, struggling to run hard after Jesus, it's faith that Christ is who he said he is, and you can know that Jesus now, and you can know your creator, like not know about him, like have a relationship with the God who holds the universe together by the word of his power. You can know that God now. And when we get to know him, God begins to renew us, make us more and more like him. And that's really, really good news. It's one of the things God has promised to do. And I want us to, in light of passages like this, be aware of people be wary of people who say, you know, Christianity is not about rules, it's about relationship. Well, here's the thing, you know, those rules don't create the relationship with God. Those Keeping rules is not why God likes you. It's not why God loves you. It's not why you have a relationship with God. But like every relationship, there are boundaries and parameters. We're going to have this relationship. Here's what comes along with it. And there are absolutely rules. We don't like that word, but there are things that God commands us to do. Call it what you want. Right? It's part of the relationship with Jesus. And you cannot have a relationship with somebody and spit in their face and be like, I don't care about what you think. I have a relationship with you. It's not about the rules. It's not how any relationship works, especially not a relationship with the God-man who created the universe. You know, If we think Jesus' standards are just as low as ours, then we just don't understand who God is. But God sent Jesus to meet the standard for us. This is... The, the good news, that we can be made new. And, and one more thing here about being renewed in this image of our creator. This should make us be a lot more patient with people in our lives. Especially when, when we look at our lives and look at all the renewal that Jesus still needs to do in us. This should lead us to be very patient with our brothers and sisters. Right? Because we see that this is a long road. It's a journey. And so we want to help each other grow. May the Lord give us patience. May we not be the kind of church who has no patience for brokenness. If we don't have patience for brokenness, we can't be a church. That's the only kind of people there are to join. It's broken people. right? This should call us to, to a kind of patience, the kind of patience that points to the goodness of Jesus. And this last verse, and the last point, new identity, and, and he just talks about this new identity we have. He says here, meaning in this body, in this church that Christ made. There's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. When he says here, he means in the body of Christ. And he's saying, you know, Christianity is more than just this set of things you do. It really changes who we are. And so what he's not saying is, you're not Greek anymore. You're not a Jew anymore. You're not a, he's not saying those details about your life disappear. He's saying here in this body, Right. Because we all have had this fundamental identity change that our lives are hidden in Christ, what we have in common is much greater than our differences. Right? So we're not going to have like black Christians sit over here and white Christians sit over here and Asian Christians, we're not even Asian people yet, but when they come, Asian Christians sit over here. Like we're not going to do that. Right? Christ is all and in all. Right? We have had the same fundamental identity change. And there's a reason that Scripture brings up these kind of ethnic line sometimes because that's always been a very easy way for division to happen. So our prayer is that God would not allow that to happen here. 
where God has already graciously made us a diverse church, that we would, in that diversity, fight for this kind of unity to think, yeah, it's not like our, the rest of our identity disappears, but what we have in common in Christ, that fundamental identity change, is much more than what we have different. We may have come from different places, but we're about to end up in the same place for all of eternity, right? And that's a much longer time than whatever time we spent before. What we have in common is greater than our differences. When Christ finds us broken people, he doesn't throw us out or just try to patch us up a little bit, make us nicer. He, he makes us new. And that's really good news. And even as Jesus is doing this work in us, like maybe he's doing the structural repairs, but it still looks a mess on the outside, right? Right, my encouragement to you is sanctification is a long journey. God is really strong and powerful. So if you're discouraged this week, about your personal growth, focus less on your own weakness, focus more on the strength of the Lord Jesus, right, and the amazing gifts he's given you to help you to fight. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, God, and we thank you so much for what you've done in Christ, and God, we we pray you'd help us, uh, Father, to live in light of that resurrection. Father, we also pray that, you know, any friends here who don't know Jesus, you'd show them what Christ is like, Father. Help us to be a loving community that looks like Jesus. So as people want to meet him, we're able to show them what he looks like. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.